several caveats about tonight. Um, First, uh, our focus tonight is on the teaching that is known as the rapture of the church. There is much we cannot cover. I want to be laser focused. We can't address the seven-year tribulation, millennial reign, relationship between Old Testament Israel and the church, questions about a possible third temple being built in Jerusalem, and a host of other things that are all connected to the notion of the rapture. I do intend to address these things on future Wednesday nights. It just can't be tonight. Uh, Second caveat, you may already have a strong position about end-time things already including the notion of the rapture. So I'm just going to ask tonight that if you come into this place with some already formed understandings from various uh, teachings or books or ministries, that you would be open to the various historical and biblical things I want to bring to your attention, and hopefully that would be helpful in those ways. Thirdly, uh, the subject tonight is not a primary doctrinal issue. We just have to acknowledge that. Uh, Any conclusion I draw tonight is not stating that anyone who disagrees with me is not saved or doesn't take the Bible seriously or isn't trying to understand Scripture well or anything like that. This is something believers disagree on and can disagree on in what we consider tonight. I also want to distinguish between the phrase false teaching and the phrase teaching what is false. It is my conviction that the subject of the rapture is an error. But teaching something that is false is different from the charge of engaging in false teaching. That is a very serious New Testament deviation from gospel doctrines. It's an error that is abominable before God and spiritually dangerous to the souls of of listeners. What we're talking about tonight is not one of those things. And then lastly, uh, I grew up in an environment in the Southern Baptist churches and circles Uh, hearing about and believing very firmly in the teaching of the rapture. Uh, It was part of the church I grew up in, and perhaps that's been the case for some of your own backgrounds and upbringing. It is a teaching that is well-rooted in Southern Baptist circles, and I was not taught any other view than that one, which said that there will be a taking away of the church in an event called the rapture. So with those caveats, here's the text in view. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17. Paul says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This particular verse is where the word rapture is based. Now, you did not hear me say the word rapture, so you would need to know about the word itself. Where does this word arise? Well, it comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, because this Greek text was translated into Latin. And the Latin Vulgate, under Jerome's influence and the many who came after Jerome to continue the use of the Latin text, used a word here for caught up that means rapture. It's the word from the verb rapio. And rapio, or the noun raptus, is where you get the term rapture to be caught up. So even though the term in English rapture is not found in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, the rapture is the English word based on the Latin translation of the Greek verb in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So that's the origin. It's several steps back. Now, um, the rapture in modern uses of the term does not refer to the second coming of Christ. It refers to a sudden removal of all believers from the earth 
which is then followed by a series of earthly events, a seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year millennial reign. I will not be addressing the notions of the tribulation or the millennium for time's sake. I want to zero in on this evening about the rapture itself, whether there is a taking away of all the Christians that are on the earth that would be followed by a series of other events. In other words, there is a coming of Christ that is not the second coming. It is some kind of initial, or even the term secret is sometimes used because uh, this is not a public appearing of Christ, but rather a disappearing of his church. This is what we want to consider. And the word rapture, let's think about the popularity of the teaching. Studies show that uh, many Americans believe there will be a taking away of the church in the future, and some are quite confident in the very near future. Studies from a decade ago suggest that the majority of evangelical leaders believed in the rapture. I don't know of a recent poll of evangelical leaders within Baptist circles or outside Baptist circles to give you a 2023 updated um, statement, but this is not a a minority or niche um, concern or subject within the culture. In fact, the popularity is widespread. Sometimes this is referred to as the secret rapture of the church or taking away of the church because of the disappearing of Christians. I remember growing up and hearing a DC Talk song released called I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And maybe you've heard this song. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I am going to give you an excerpt here. A man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears. One's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. And there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And in addition to that particular song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, there are scores of television ministries, evangelists, books, movies, board games, bumper stickers that continue to speak to this idea. One bumper sticker says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I bet you've probably been behind a vehicle with that. Maybe you might have that on your bumper and I haven't paid attention to it. I don't know. Um, (laughs) You might take it off after tonight. I don't know. We'll see. Now, I do remember, though, this is uh, is a memory I have as as a young boy going into a Christian bookstore with my family. We went to this Christian bookstore and there were some VHS tapes that were for sale. And the VHS tapes had on the front what to do if you've been left behind. And and the idea would be that in the rapture of the church, who's going to explain to people what's just happened? And so, I mean, these days you would have to find a VCR in order to use those tapes. But nonetheless, these probably have been products that are updated. But I just remember as a kid seeing these VHS tapes with the effort to say to people with a no doubt well-intended production, we must let people know what has happened. Now, um, what about this historical perspective? The way I want to go about the remainder of our time is by looking at some historical matters and then some biblical texts. First of all, some historical viewpoints to consider. And then what texts are used to talk about the rapture and is the teaching about the rapture the best way to understand those texts? Um, advocates of the rapture will tell you that this is a teaching found at pockets throughout church history. Now, the problem uh, arises once you start to investigate this claim. 
It is indeed the case that the word rapture is found at different points in church history. Uh, People like John Gill, for example, in the 1700s, write in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 about the rapture. There are occasions of this word appearing in the 1600s and in the 1500s by different figures, some who are more well-known than others. But nonetheless, the question isn't whether the word appears. Because again, the Latin rendering of the Greek word in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 could simply be understood to mean the second coming of Christ. In other words, we believe in what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says. We believe there will be a gathering together of the saints. Amen. At the return of Christ. The question is whether 1 Thessalonians 4.17 in the use of that word in church history meant an earlier taking away of only the church that didn't bring an end to all things and that has led to a series of other earthly events. And so when you start investigating the claim that the word rapture was used at pockets in church history, what you find is, is the use of that term what we mean in modern days when we talk about the rapture? And the answer is a resounding no. It is not the case. I have looked at the arguments whether the rapture can be implied from statements found in the church fathers. I've looked at every example of folks who have said, I think that when someone speaks about the nearness of Christ's coming and they speak about it in this text, that probably what they mean is the rapture. I don't find any of these statements from the early centuries of the church used to support a supposed rapture teaching convincing at all. I think it is incredibly stretching beyond the bounds of reason to argue that the teaching of the rapture goes back to the early centuries of the church. And I think the same thing is the problem in the Middle Ages. I've looked at the arguments that the rapture could be implied from statements found in the Middle Ages, which is roughly from about 450 to 1450. And I don't think you can argue for a single clear instance of the rapture being taught and propagated with any influence during those centuries either. In fact, the dominant millennial perspective during the Middle Ages was a result of people like Augustine and others. It was a amillennial perspective and not um, anything uh, that would deal with the rapture. And then if you look at the time of the Reformation up to the 1800s, the same situation is present. These are not uh, places in history where you can find clear and influential statements about a taking away of the church followed by a series of other earthly events. I think the earliest that you could find this clearly demonstrated is in the 1800s. And I, I just want to put forward to you, historically, that's interesting. Because what you're dealing with is not something that you could demonstrate as an old and well-established teaching throughout the history of the church. That is not the case with what we are dealing with. In fact, I would suggest to you that in the full range of church history, something that starts in the 1800s is quite new. 200 years is not old compared to everything that has gone before it. Um, So I want to talk about... Uh, with the idea of the rapture before the 1800s, answering, I don't think you could make a strong case that even trying to make certain inferences from certain statements where they believe the Lord's coming could be imminent would be enough to imply that there's a secret rapture before a seven-year tribulation. It requires reading so much as inferences into those earlier texts. I don't think we would be on good grounds contextually and historically. I think we would be treating those earlier texts anachronistically, taking something now and reading it back into that 
And I don't think that would be good history or theology. We don't want to develop doctrine that way. I want to talk about a man whose last name is Darby. When you read about uh, the system of dispensationalism, which teaches the rapture, I can't talk about dispensationalism at large tonight, but John Darby, John Nelson Darby, who lived from 1800 to 1882, is considered a leader and father of classical dispensationalism. And it views two peoples of God, Israel and the church, and Darby believed and taught with great influence those after him um, that there would be a gathering together of the church, an initial coming of the Lord that would not bring an end to all things. That would not mean the judgment of the wicked or the resurrection of the just and unjust. Instead, there would be a taking away of the church in a disappearing of the people. And the only place that I think you can see it earlier than Darby might be around 1812 in a man named Emmanuel Lacunza, who was a Jesuit priest and wrote under a pseudonym named Rabbi Ben Ezra. All of this was eventually uncovered. And he seems to also suggest that there would be a taking away of the church so that they could escape the reign of a future Antichrist. But I don't think I could find it clearer before 1812. And that book, as a, written by, under a pseudonym, was end up, it ended up being put in the library of the Archbishop in London. And uh, was not influential for anybody around him. It was Darby. John Nelson Darby. A man named Darby who was born in an Anglo-Irish family. And he became disillusioned over time with the state church. And Darby joined others who considered themselves the brethren. Who had felt spiritually distant from the state church. Because of some of their gatherings at Plymouth, Darby and his group became known as the Plymouth Brethren, founded and led by him in the 1800s. And he began to teach and advocate um, the teaching about the rapture to his congregations and those under his influence beyond church settings. He... um, He is someone that is associated with a a woman, a young teenage girl that he met by his own recounting. A teenage girl named Margaret MacDonald. And here's where some of the history gets a little fuzzy. And some of these, um, some of the questions that I have about this aren't going to be answered on this side of heaven. There was someone named Margaret MacDonald who at 15 years old attended a healing service and said she had a vision of a two-stage return of Christ. One, the initial stage, that would be a taking away of uh, Christians. Some have said John Darby gets the idea of the rapture from McDonald's purported vision. I'm not sure that that can be historically demonstrated without problems. It is possible that Darby had already been thinking about a two-stage return of Christ... A few years before his encounter with McDonald. But by Darby's own recounting, his encounter with this young teenager who had this purported vision of this particular thing at least confirmed for him what he had been thinking. But I'm not sure we can demonstrate that this was the origin of it. I would be much more reluctant to speak that kind of uh, dogmatically about it. I don't think historically it's as clear. Here's what I know is clear. In the first... 1,800 years of church history, there was no creed, catechism, or denomination 
that taught what we know of as the modern day teaching about the rapture. And that historical fact should set upon us all and realize this is very different than perhaps the ways of talking about the rapture might indicate in the circles around us. The prominence of rapture teaching goes back only 200 years in church history. But this man named Darby, while incredibly influential and leading in the teaching about the rapture, let's talk about its spread. Darby's teaching went from Europe to North America because Darby made a series of evangelistic trips over the Atlantic to the United States. And he also, with the influence of the Plymouth Brethren, produced Bible conference circuits. During these Bible conference movements, they would draw crowds in talking about Bible prophecy and end times speculation. It was all the rage. And especially given the time frame of this part of the 1800s and some into the early 1900s, let us remember there was a civil war. There were not only uh, the, the Civil War years, but in the early 1900s, we're thinking about World War I that would come about, World War II that would come about. It, it is not historically irrelevant that some of the most widespread teaching about the rapture would be in cultural conditions where we would long for deliverance and escape from tribulation and suffering. Sometimes those conditions and circumstances provide the very kinds of uh, situations that would make certain teachings very, very persuasive. So the influence of the Plymouth Brethren in the U.S. and the Bible Conference Circuit Movement continued with something that was popularized in the writing of C.I. Schofield. Schofield, who lived from 1843 to 1921, produced a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield had no theological training, and yet the Schofield Reference Bible, under his leadership and guidance and notes, sold millions and millions of copies. More than two million Schofield Bibles were sold before the end of World War II. So within a few decades, first published in 1909, to the end of World War II, a couple million Bibles, at the very least, had been sold. And what Schofield's notes indicate in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the bodies of the saved, and I'm quoting here from his notes, the bodies of the saved of whatever dispensation are included in this first resurrection. It is the blessed hope of the church. And he ties this language in 1 Thessalonians 4 to Titus 2, 11 through 13, which is about the blessed hope and appearing of Christ, to Matthew 24, 42 in his note references, which is about the taking away of the one in the field or at the mill and the other is left behind. And so in Schofield's notes, read by millions that would follow, you have in these notes, in these references, the very kinds of Bible passages often advocated today to teach the rapture. The Schofield Bible was widely read and distributed in both England and America. Schofield became a pastor in Dallas, Texas, and he began to influence someone named Lewis Berry Schaefer. Lewis Berry Schaefer founded Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. And through Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, dispensational, a series of dispensational giants 
have gone through and published and taught, and I'll mention some of those names in a bit. And so putting, putting some of the pieces together of when certain influences arose and who they influenced after that is very fascinating. Also in the early 1900s was the publication of an end times chart book published by Clarence Larkin, and it was called Dispensational Truth. Dispensational Truth in 1918 had a series of very complicated, elaborate end times charts that would fold out so that you could see graphic displays of the various uh, timelines and projections of what has happened and what will happen. Schofield became close friends with someone named D.L. Moody, who founded the Moody Bible Institute... And this institute and Dallas Theological Seminary became ground zero North American institutions of education on dispensational theology, which certainly majored, by implication, the teaching about the rapture. Other writers and teachers popularized it as well. R.A. Torrey, Harry Ironside, Dwight Pentecost, John Walvoord, Charles Ryrie. Interestingly, Lewis Berry Schaefer, Dwight Pentecost... John Walvoord and Charles Ryrie were all associated with Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, when people are looking to go into ministry and uh, learn more about hermeneutics and Bible interpretation, uh, these places have reputations that precede them. And of all the the particular sound things that were rightly marking um, the conservative theology and love for Scripture at Dallas Theological Seminary, people who go to Moody Bible Institute in those places in the 1900s would also be immersed in a rapture teaching. The rapture was certainly popularized in the 1970s when Hal Lindsey wrote The Late Great Planet Earth. It sold over 40 million copies. And other books have popularized the same teachings. Um, In in addition to Hal Lindsey, you can think of some of the best-selling dispensational rapture advocates like Grant Jeffrey, Robert Thomas, Thomas Ice, Billy Graham, Mark Hitchcock, John Hagee, David Jeremiah, Joel Rosenberg, Chuck Missler, Pat Robertson, Jack Van Impey, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, the list is long. And that's not because these people are not believers or take the Bible seriously. It is to say of any other things that they may have as sound and, uh, and, and good teaching and doctrine, they all have in common, they all have in common a teaching about the rapture in their ministries and publication outlets. But nothing, nothing has impacted public awareness of the rapture more than the Left Behind series. Written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. The series has sold to date more than 80 million copies around the world in multiple languages and made into multiple films. The first book called Left Behind was published in 1995. And um, so in a couple years, we're dealing uh, at, a, at a mile marker in 2023 um, with 30 years since that book would have been first released. For many disciples of Christ that were experiencing what I was growing up, that was all you knew and were taught about what the coming of Christ would be. You knew that Kirk Cameron and uh, you know several other uh, folks who had, who had made these movies, these people loved the Lord. 
They love the Bible. And this is what they said to you were coming. And now it turns out that Nicolas Cage and Kirk Cameron have a lot in common as well um, because of uh, left behind movies that are made. But nonetheless, you, you trust people for spiritual guidance and in, in, uh, in Bible teaching. And in my own experience and in the background, I know of some of you in this very room, um, this was your experience as well. I want to look together, not just at the spread of the rapture in history, though that's a whole uh, fascinating thing in itself that we've just lightly touched on, some of the interesting stats and figures and names. What is used to advocate for the teaching of the rapture? And then what, what about the church creeds that have been confessed throughout the ages? What would they say about the coming of Christ? Uh, let's consider several scriptures together. I want to look at five. The top five Scriptures used to teach the rapture. We must talk first about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4. And in this section of the letter, Paul is addressing a concern. Because the letter of the 1 Thessalonians here is written to a people who have had believers die since they have heard the gospel. And they, these living believers, would like to know that at the return of Christ... Have our fellow believers that have died, are they going to miss something? Are are they not going to have the life that is made for them? And Paul assures them the dead in Christ will rise first. So you have no need to worry about any of your dead brethren and sistren who have gone to be with the Lord. Their bodies will rise and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. So when he says in chapter 418, therefore encourage one another with these words, it was to address a deep-seated need that they possessed as a congregation to be comforted and encouraged with their misunderstandings about how things might unfold. And Paul assures them about the resurrection of Christ. But in the language here, he talks about um, the dead in Christ rising and then we will rise as well. And it tells us in verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. When people have taught about the rapture of the church, uh, they they will often speak about it in a way. And I don't mean every single rapture advocate would speak the following. But at least in the main, I think we could conclude that there seems to be a kind of secrecy and uncertainty about what has just happened. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, the imagery does not seem to suggest that. The imagery talks about the descent of Christ. It talks about a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And it talks about the dead in Christ and then we who are alive are caught to be with him. In verse 17, an implication is sometimes drawn that I want to avoid. In verse 17, we who are alive are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, and we will always be with the Lord. One of the implications sometimes drawn is that we will be forever with the Lord in heaven where he's going to take his raptured people. But notice here in verse 17, the descent of Christ, it is never clarified in verse 17 that he's taking his people away back with him to to heaven. Instead, in verse 17, it says, we meet the Lord in the air and we will always be with him. But it doesn't tell you where. That is something that must be understood in the context or with the help of other passages. And we, we are on good grounds with those who have done work in uh, the use of the Greek language in the first century to know that those who go to meet someone, 
There is a a way of talking about going to meet a royal or dignified figure where you leave the city to welcome in your coming king and you don't then depart with that king where he was coming from. You welcome, you go out to meet and you welcome him that he might return in his rightful authority and rule. In verse 17, the way I think this should be interpreted is that we will all be raised at the coming of the Lord and that this is the second coming. This is not a secret coming where other things will then unfold after we are taken away with the Lord to heaven. But we will always be with the Lord because when Christ returns, he comes to make all things new and we will be his vindicated people in the new world. And his uh, readers are to be encouraged by these words. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, we see a parallel teaching, but we must look at it. In In 1 Corinthians 15, the same thing is taught... With similar language, the subject of the return of Christ and trumpet language. Notice in 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which I think that means we will not all be dead when Christ comes. But we all shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. What 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17 are teaching, is the same thing here. Now, sometimes what is implied is that this is, like 1 Thessalonians 4, according to a rapture teaching, this in 1 Corinthians 15 would be the secret gathering of the church, which disappears, leaving airplanes and cars and stores unmanned in a sudden moment of confusion for those that are left behind. And that these who are taken... Are then, um, are then not having to go through the various earthly events that the book of Revelation would later unpack with various seals and trumpets. But I just want to emphasize here, the language of last trumpet is mentioned with no more to follow. That this is not just a trumpet, but the last trumpet. And that in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told earlier in this chapter that in verse 24... Verse 25, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, which is destroyed at the resurrection. And so the last enemy and the last trumpet, this is language associated with the coming of Christ who brings life to the dead, to his people. And then the perishable puts on imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. I think 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and 1 Corinthians 15.51 talk about the instantaneous glorious transformation of the dead in a resin state and the living to a glorified state so that we have the bodies that would be fitted for a coming kingdom of God. And that this happens at the return of Christ, which is not a secret event, but rather the second coming that the creeds confess. Look in Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, we see the language of the blessed hope, uh, the blessed appearing, glorious appearing. And in Titus chapter 2, it reads this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now... In the teaching about the rapture, it is sometimes called the blessed hope we have as believers. But when you listen to advocates of the rapture talk about this verse, 
It would not fit with their teaching that this is the glorious appearing, as uh, verse uh, 13 says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a disappearing of the saints, according to the rapture teaching. This here would fit just as what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. That at the return of Christ, we have now the experience of our blessed hope because now the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ has happened. His appearing, His glorious and only return. Let's look together in the Gospels to Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, one of the passages used to sometimes support the rapture teaching is someone that is removed in the language Jesus is telling us. Matthew 24, verse 40 and 41. Two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. And so some might say, well, here you have people who are left behind and then somebody is taken. Now, um, I certainly understand why uh, someone would look at this and say, well, you know, I don't want to be left for whatever judgment is there. So being taken is a good thing. And then somebody is left for judgment. Isn't this case closed? Well, if you look broader in the context, we are given a comparison that helps inform what being taken and left might look like. Look in chapter 24, 38 or verse 37. Uh, Chapter 24, 37 of Matthew says, as were the days of Noah... So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, what was going on in Noah's days? As in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So I want to ask you, being removed and taken away, is that a good thing in the days of Noah or is being left actually what you want? In the context before verses 40 and 41, if the days of Noah is what the Son of Man days will be like, then being swept away or taken is a picture of being taken in judgment. Noah and his family were left while the others were swept away. There is a passage in Luke 17 which confirms the same thing. And the reason this is important is Matthew 24 is sometimes used to speak of being taken away as what's desired. I think it's the precise opposite. That what's used sometimes to talk about a taking away of the people of God at a secret rapture is actually um, not what this text would mean at all. You would actually want to be left. To be swept away would be uh, swept away in the flood. Luke 17 tells us in this parallel. This is uh, still passage number 4. It's just a parallel to Matthew 24 in imagery. Uh, The fifth will be in Revelation. So I talked about five scriptures, right? 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, Titus 2, Matthew 24, and Luke 17 I'm treating together. Luke 17, verse 34. Luke 17, 34. It says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken... And the other left. There will be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. And then the question that comes is, where will they be taken? There will be one, uh, uh, there will be one taken. And in verse 37, where, Lord? And he says, where the corpse is and there the vultures will gather. So if someone is taken and the disciples say, where? And Jesus says, essentially with imagery that's To judgment. To judgment. It would fit exactly the comparison of the days of Noah. I think Matthew 24, 40 and 41 must not be read with only those verses in view. You've got to zoom out and say in the context, is being taken a good thing? 
Not in Matthew 24 and not in Luke 17. The contexts are directly against that teaching. The fifth and final passage, Revelation 4. In Tim LaHaye's book, Revelation Unveiled, and in several other uh, places, Revelation 4 is sometimes used as saying John represents the church of Jesus Christ here. And in Revelation 1 to 3, we see references to the church. And then in Revelation 4, following, the church is not mentioned. And that's because in Revelation 4, 1, the uh, vision of John here represents the rapture of the church. That's making a lot of interpretive leaps there, which I do not think are sound. But in Revelation 4.1, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. And so this is spoken about uh, by some rapture teachers, that this represents the uh, removal from the earth. There is a huge problem with this, though. John, just like every Old Testament prophet before him, even though he's in the New Testament, is being caught up in the spirit here in a prophetic vision, which while, while a prophetic vision in his mind or spirit to perceive, they never physically leave the earth. In other words, to be caught in the Spirit, to be in the Spirit in chapter 4, verse 2, is exactly the language that's true for Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the prophets of God who never left planet Earth when they beheld what God had for them to see. If Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 represents the teaching about the rapture for John's example, then nobody is going anywhere. And, and of course, that is not what rapture advocates would want to conclude about Revelation 4, verse 1. But I am saying it's ignoring the very careful language about being in the spirit in what is said that follows. Um, so in these passages, 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Titus 2 and in Matthew 24, paralleled in Luke 17, and then in Revelation 4, I don't believe the best reading of any of these passages is that there will be a soon coming of the Lord that will take away his church and then a later return when his public appearing and glorious vindication of the saints takes place. Instead, I think each of these are consistent with a single return of Christ that the church anticipates, that that is our blessed hope. It is indeed the case, historically, that no creed, catechism, or denomination ever taught for the first 1,800 years of church history, there, there would be a separate coming of, the Christ, of Christ called the rapture. Here is instead what they teach. In the Apostles' Creed, He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. In the Nicene Creed, which we recite on the first of each month, we read about Jesus that He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. In the Athanasian Creed, we read about Jesus that he ascended to heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And at his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. I think what we can summarize here is, if we say, I believe that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 teaches the coming of Christ to raise the dead, what I would want to get us to consider is, before the 1800s, what the church historians and interpreters would say is, we are awaiting the one coming of Christ, 
that Christ himself spoke of and that the apostles prophesied and that when Christ comes, he comes to make all things new. He comes to raise the dead. He comes to judge the wicked. He comes to establish his kingdom and that that's what the creeds and catechisms of the church have consistently taught. These things are not historically disputable. That's why it's such a challenge when, if you were in my situation, knowing that this is the only thing you had ever been taught, and then you hear a different perspective, and look at some history and think, well, wait a second here. It can really rock you. And it can make you think, well, all right, and if if I had not heard these particular things before, you know, why is that the case? But I think it's our historical situatedness that after Darby... And in the 1800s, with the publication of things and the Schofield uh, Reference Bible and all of the influence in the 1900s of the various institutes and seminaries like Moody Bible Institute and DTS, these are places that love the Bible and had right views about how to understand it as the Word of God. But in their influence on this particular issue of eschatology or the end times, I think that they were committing an error that continues to be propagated at a popular level. It might be helpful to know that the majority of Old and New Testament scholars who are conservative scholars and evangelicals do not hold to a secret taking away of the church known as the rapture. That is not a dominant position in sound conservative biblical scholarship either. What I, what I do want us to realize, though, is that there are other ways of thinking about the end times than maybe what we have assumed for a long time if our background is more like what was in the 1800s and beyond, uh, the dominant view. And what I would ask of you is, if you came into this place tonight feeling quite strongly about one way of looking at the end times, that you would consider different ways of looking at some of these texts, these top five, where if the rapture is not taught in these five, it is not taught anywhere. That if it's not in these five, or if there are other ways and contexts that help us interpret them better, and that if historically, for 1,800 years, this was not the teaching of the church, then those perspectives and interpretations should give us pause and be even, I think, open to reconsidering positions that we might closely hold to. We're not giving up the coming of Christ, but it might require of us to hold to a view of the coming of Christ that would be more consistent with history and creeds and doctrines. And that is we confess that he will come. And when he comes, he comes to raise the dead and to judge the wicked and to set up his kingdom everlasting. Let's pray together.